Well, hello again, Tony Payne here. Great to be with you again on The Painful Truth. And this is a subscriber-only edition and some special news for you subscribers. Learn the Gospel, that Two Ways to Live resource, part one of the new Two Ways to Live training framework, has finally arrived and is available for purchase. Um, I'm really grateful for many of you who've encouraged me about this resource over the last, it feels like, 18 months that we've been working on it and drafting and redrafting, and I've shared some of those drafts with you over that time. It's finally arrived in the warehouse, at least here in Australia. It'll be a few more weeks, I think, early August or so, before the books find their way to the US warehouse, but it's arrived here in Australia and is available, and I know many of you have been waiting and wondering when that would happen and thinking about how you could use it to teach the fundamentals of the gospel uh, in your churches. And on that score, Matthias Media is running a little pilot program to help you dip your toe in the waters of that. It's inviting a few churches, just a select number of churches, in term four of this year to just set aside, say, two or three of their small groups to run the Learn the Gospel material within the groups, just to see how it fits and works in your context, for you to have a look at it, to try it out with a few groups, to see what it's like, and to be able to therefore think through, well, how would we use this within our congregation as a whole going forward to help teach the gospel to our people? And if you'd like to participate in that pilot program, if you'd like to have a little go at running Learn the Gospel in a few groups in Term 4, just get in touch with Gavin Shume at Matthias Media. That's G-Shume, S-H-U-M-E, G-Shume at MatthiasMedia.com.au and let him know that you've heard about this from me on The Painful Truth and that you'd like to participate in that pilot program and a sense of how many groups and how many copies of Learn the Gospel that you think you'd need, and Gavin will liaise with you on that and give you a good price to have a go, to sort of test the waters for Learn the Gospel just in the last few months of 2022. Now, at the moment, this is just something we're doing here in Australia, and it's invitation only, so it's only for Painful Truth subscribers and a few other churches that we're inviting. And if you'd like to take advantage of it, as I say, get in touch with Gavin Shume. That's gshume at matthiasmedia.com.au. Well... That's enough on that. On to today's topic, which is how you feel about wearing the label conservative. How do you feel about being a conservative? I've lost count how many times over the last 30, 40 years in my Christian experience that conservatives and progressives or liberals have fought over different issues in my particular denomination, and in the Christian world generally. Through the fog of time, different figures and controversies rise up and recede in my memory. I can see Archbishop Peter Carnley, who was at that time the primate of Australia, arguing that the resurrection was just a spiritual experience rather than a physical event, and that Christ was not the only path to salvation. And then the godly, gracious Archbishop of Sydney, Harry Goodhue, copping a pounding in the secular press for daring to object to this. I think that was in around 2000. And not long after that, I can see the radically revisionist Bishop John Spong emerging from the mist, visiting Australia at the invitation of Peter Carnley and the Progressive Christian Network, as it was called. And once again, it was the nasty old conservatives who were the ones to criticise Spong and to push back against his denial of pretty much 
every basic tenet of Christianity. And then I think of all the other skirmishes going back to the 80s over multiple issues, over women's ordination, over gay ordination for that matter, over the blessing of same-sex marriage and so on. And in each case, the progressives or liberals were the champions of change. They wanted to update the doctrine and morality of Christianity. And in the opposing corner were the conservatives. And given that on all these issues I found myself barracking for the conservatives, I guess that makes me one, and you too, quite possibly. So how do you feel about being a conservative? I can't say that the label absolutely thrills me to the core, because what is a conservative after all? When we think of a conservative, we tend to think of a stick in the mud, a reactionary, a button-down member of the establishment, someone who wants things to stay the same. A conservative is risk-averse, change-averse, very possibly excitement-averse. They're the kind of people who wear cream blazers over blue chinos and carry briefcases. And with their thin, cold hands, their thin, cold, white hands, they cling on to the dogmas and traditions of a bygone age. Conservatives want to forestall and avoid the new and better future that everybody else is longing for. And so it's just what I've always wanted to be, a conservative. Of course, like many such words in our culture, conservative and progressive are really dependent on their predicate, or at least they should be. It's like being narrow as opposed to broad. It depends what you're talking about. I would prefer my waist to be more narrow and, if possible, my shoulders more broad. I guess I'd like my fridge to be conservative of the food that's inside it, and my five irons to be very progressive and, if possible, in the right direction. And so it all depends on what you're conserving or progressing. And this is true in many areas of life, including politics, interestingly enough. I don't know if you've ever realised this, but political conservatism is quite different in different parts of the world, depending on what it is that the movement is seeking to conserve. And so British and European political conservatism is very different, say, from American political conservatism. I've recently been reading George F. Will's book, The Conservative Sensibility, which is a description of the nature and background and foundations of American political conservatism. And if you're interested in these kinds of things, it's a really interesting and well-written book. And he elaborates or describes how the two conservatisms are different because of what they're trying to conserve. The European or British style of conservatism is seeking to conserve institutions and practices that have existed for ages. It's kind of like a throne and altar conservatism, is how he describes it, where you've got established social hierarchies, aristocracies, established churches that were produced by the slow working of history over many centuries, and the, the European or British conservative wants to keep these ancient structures in place because of their central place in the culture that they're part of. Whereas American conservatism is quite different. It seeks to conserve the Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution of the United States is, in fact, the opposite of British and European conservatism. It's about not having a king 
and not having a monarchical state over you. It's about the liberty of the individual to pursue life, liberty and happiness in their own ways. And so American conservatism in seeking to conserve the principles and norms and structures of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and so on is all about giving the individual freedom to be spontaneous and to experiment and to do what they want to do, in, in effect, to generate novelty and experimentation. And that is quite different from British and continental conservatism. It's a fascinating book. And if you're into politics at all, and especially want to understand American politics and the differences between progressives and conservatives, it's a really well-written and interesting read. And while I'm on this little digression about political conservatism, you might wonder where Australian political conservatism fits into those two options, the British or continental version, the throne and altar conservatism, or the more American libertarian conservatism. I'm not sure I can say. In fact, I'm not sure that Australian political conservatism really exists as an intellectual movement or force. There's no throne and altar that we're wanting to protect or establish church. Uh, and there's certainly no libertarian constitution that we're trying to conserve. I suspect Australian political conservatives end up just being a slightly more cautious and practical version of progressivism. Australians seem increasingly to believe and assume that the government is the main and most important actor in society and that it is largely to blame for our problems and could solve them if only it had more power and money to spend, which is a progressive vision of government. And so the conservative side of Australian politics seems largely to go along with these assumptions and just offer an alternative that's meant to be a bit more cautious and sensible than the other guys. Well, that's my read anyway. But I digress. The point of all of this is that what a conservative is all depends on what you're conserving. And on the other hand, what it is that you're wanting to change or make progress in. And to come back to Christian debates... Anglican progressives and Christian progressives generally usually want to improve and change and progress our doctrine and our morality to make it more attractive to the world while keeping and conserving many of the cultural practices and traditions of historic Christianity. And so you end up with some strange contradictions. You have the strange spectacle of modernist Anglican bishops spouting ultra-progressive theology while still clothed in the robes and liturgical practices and church buildings of centuries-old tradition. It's progressive content, but it's very conservative style. And the Anglican conservatives, at least in my part of the world, are the complete opposite. They've long since gotten rid of the robes and the ancient liturgies and the archaic language and the churchy architecture, while at the same time, vigorously arguing for the retention of the unchanging ancient truths of the Bible. It's a more progressive style with very conservative content, if I can put it like that. I suppose another way to put it is that Anglican progressives want to change the church's doctrine to be more like the world. True Anglican conservatives want to change the world. And that's why conservative as a label, is never quite enough for me. It's a bit like the American Constitution, I suppose. It seeks to secure the rights of the citizens for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so to conserve that Constitution is actually to promote liberty and personal freedom, to experiment and to change. 
In a similar way, the biblical truth that I really want to conserve and pass on to the next generation is a charter for transformation. It proclaims a truth that is revolutionary, that transforms lives and cultures, that is not bound by times or places or traditions. The ancient, unchanging biblical gospel speaks to every culture and every language and every tradition and challenges it because it speaks of the Christ who is Lord of every person and time and culture. And he calls on all people everywhere to turn back to him, to repent. This gospel looks forward to the time that John saw in his vision when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ in Revelation 11. And that's why true theological conservatives should be methodological and personal and cultural progressives. The unchanging biblical truth that we conserve and preserve and proclaim drives us constantly to change, to change our lives, to change our practices, to change our cultures, because we want to change the world through the preaching of the gospel in the power of God's Spirit. We want to see people's lives transformed through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. We want to see our churches transformed and to grow in love and faith and urgency for gospel mission. So I guess I am willing to be a conservative, but just not in gospel ambition, shall we say. And so let's not, for example, conserve ministry traditions and practices that are no longer fit for the purpose for which they were originally devised, simply because we've always done them. If the trellis needs changing, as they say, let's get to work with hammer and nail so that the vine has room to flourish and grow. Let's be constantly progressive in the way we proclaim the unchanging gospel truth that we conserve. And so maybe I'm not an unvarnished, unmodified conservative after all. Perhaps I'm a conservative revolutionary. Who wants to join me? Well, there are some reflections on being a conservative and whether you'd like to be one. The book I mentioned by George F. Will really is fascinating. If you're interested in politics and political history, and especially US politics, it's really worth a read. Uh, even, or maybe I should say, especially if your political leanings are more progressive. For me, one of the more fascinating aspects of his argument was the attempt to find a rational basis for natural rights that didn't rely on God and their God-given nature. Will argues pretty persuasively, I think, that the US Constitution is about securing and promoting existing natural rights that all people have, self-evidently, as they say, by virtue of simply being human. As the Declaration of Independence puts it, the famous sentence there, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the Constitution is really about a form of government that secures and protects these rights that we already have because we're humans. But Will, George Will, wants to argue that belief in the God who created all men equal and endowed them with these rights is entirely optional. If God is there, well, that's fine. If he's there, he also created us with the rational capacity to figure out what those rights are using our reason. 
George Will thinks. But if God is not there and George Will himself is an atheist, then we can still derive these natural self-evident rights from reason. And George Will uses a version of what he calls rule utilitarianism to do this. And his argument at this point is pretty tortuous and unconvincing, especially if you know anything about utilitarianism and its weaknesses. And sadly, at least for George Will and for American conservatives, I think it explains why their movement is in decline as an intellectual force and why its political influence is waning and I think unlikely to grow. Our postmodern world, our secular world, has moved on from the kind of enlightenment confidence of George Will that we could establish morality and rights purely on the basis of reason. I don't think anything is self-evident anymore in our society, in a society that doesn't share basic assumptions about truth and morality, basic Christian assumptions about those things. It's as if the capital from a previously more Christian culture has been spent, and the mostly Christian virtues and assumptions that undergird the American Constitution, individual responsibility, self-restraint, and so on, These things are all in major decline, and as a result, the system is showing real cracks. As Will himself points out, the Congress has mostly given up on writing laws. The presidency is gathering more and more power to itself. There's a genuine disagreement over the basic function of the Supreme Court. Both sides are increasingly declaring the other side to be illegitimate and evil. The American system is in trouble, I think, and it's because the foundations have been eroded, at least in my view. And it's interesting to me, I'm a bit of an American political junkie and enjoy reading and listening uh, to debates and discussions about it. It seems that the American figures today who are arguing for a return to the Constitution, to the kind of constitutional freedom-loving conservatism or classical liberalism, as it's often called, It's interesting how many of them are Christians or Jews of some stripe or other, or at least fellow travellers with those traditions. And I strongly suspect they're fighting a losing battle. Well, thanks for being here again this week on The Painful Truth for a discussion about what it means to be a conservative, mostly what it means to be a Christian conservative, that's the main point, but I just haven't been able to resist thinking a little bit about political conservatism just because it interests me. If you've got any questions or thoughts or contributions, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can send me an email at tonyjpain at me.com or just go across to the website and make a comment there and I'll respond and get back to you. Uh, The only other thing to say just in conclusion is that the Centre for Christian Living event on deception that I'm speaking at is coming up fast. It's on August the 24th. Uh, If you'd like to come along there to more college or to tune in via live stream to think about how the Sermon on the Mount challenges our whole view of integrity and deception and what it means for our words to match reality, uh, come along on August the 24th, either virtually or in person in Newtown here in Sydney. You can go across to the Centre for Christian Living website, that's ccl.more.edu.au to find out all the details and to register. Well, that's about all for this week. Thanks for being here on The Conservative Painful Truth, and I'll look forward to speaking with you again next week. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now. 